If you have a Bible with you, you could turn to Isaiah 9. We've just read a couple of verses from there, and then we're going to turn as well and consider Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> but as you're going there, I just want to remind you again to make things plain. Most years going back, we have an Advent wreath and Advent candles that get lit on these mornings, these Sunday gatherings leading up to Christmas. And as we light them, there are themes associated with them. And so the passages that get read, I'm sure you've read, read before or heard before, you're familiar with them. But this year we decided to take these passages and drill down a little bit deeper. We want to make sure that good words, solid words, are not overlooked or simply taken for granted because they sound churchy. I think if I asked you to make a list of the 10 most churchy words you can think about, words that you don't often use outside of it, you could come up with some good ones. And I hope that those list of words don't become those that are so familiar that they have no more meaning. So last week we looked at hope, which is no small thing. And this morning we're going to look at peace. I want to point your attention to Isaiah 9 and to Ephesians 2. The, the number of times that peace is given is one of the major promises, the gifts that has been offered in the child that is born and the son that is given. It would be fair to say that if someone asked the Christian church, what is the meaning of Christmas, that we must at some level bring up and discuss and define, and I would say even exalt in or celebrate the idea of peace. Because, as Isaiah calls him, Jesus would be born the Prince of Peace. It says of Jesus that what we should expect of the child that was born is that eventually the increase of his government and of peace would never end. Only up and to the right on the scale and the graph of peace. And then looking back upon Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, Paul writes to the Ephesians and he describes the difficulty they're having getting along. And he says, Jesus himself is our peace. So the question becomes, what does that mean? What are we offering to the world that has been offered to us in the child that has been born? What are we offering when we offer peace? Maybe the first thing to note is that peace is something that everyone intuitively, I think, longs for. And yet, if you've lived for a few minutes in this world, you realize that peace is in short supply. I have a confession to make of my middle-aged self. And that is, is that when I was younger, I used to judge some of my uncles or some older people that I knew for being what I saw as obsessed with World War I and II, mainly World War II. Do you know anyone like this? I remember going to my uncle's house, who was brilliant, and I believed, probably was curious about and knew a lot of things, and yet every single time I was there, he was reading the 901st book on World War II. His TV station was locked on some black and white documentary. And though I could have answered academically questions about the significance of World War II, and generally speaking, I would have known, I think that at the time I lacked an understanding of why there was such a strong interest in a world war. Many of those who were studying it had been impacted directly, had had brothers, cousins, 
fathers, grandfathers who had fought in these wars. Not much concerning religion, philosophy, politics, the economy had been been left untouched by these wars. In other words, a lack of peace is a big deal. Now, the reason I say it's a confession is because I often judge these things, and now, hopefully, as a sign of maturity and wisdom, as I try to figure out what it is that makes the world tick, or perhaps just because I'm getting old myself, I find myself more and more drawn to the stories from World War I and II. I listened to hours recently of one of the great courses on Audible concerning World War I, and it was enthralling. The thing that struck me the most was how shocking World War I, especially the way that it unfolded and its bloodshed and its seemingly futile and unending smashing into a brick wall over and over again, how shocking that was to the world. Because coming to the end of the 1800s, end of the 19th century there, there was a growing belief in the world, especially those who thought deeply and those who controlled the levers of the economy and who were inventors, those who were at the forefront of the Industrial Revolution. There was an increasing optimism that humanity had cracked the code on its old caveman-like barbarism and that perhaps through reason and rationale, through increase of wealth and political understanding that the world would finally be free from all of those gross hostilities. Philosophers talked about progress endlessly. And so it was a great shock when the realities of war visited nearly every inch of society. You may know from the way that this worked that over the course of months and years, there were often tens of thousands of lives lost over sometimes a few hundred yards of land. There were times when in one year, a successful battle meant that you trudged your way through muddy, shell-laden bits of ground, only to having seen your friends and fellow soldiers die in this area only to, six months later, walk back in a slow retreat over the same ground. And the underlying spirit of a world that was at war then only continued a few decades later when it seemed as though the whole thing was set on replay. The point being... The world is marked by, in an indelible way, the scars of hostility. Everywhere you look, the first instinct is not, wow, it's amazing how humans get along. No student of history would ever say, the astounding thing about mankind is the way that we hold things together. We love to just only build, 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 up, 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 integrity, integrity, integrity. But instead, there is, I believe, a through line through the center of human history of a lack of peace, and everyone knows it. So when Isaiah proclaims to Israel, and when the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus that there is a child that's been born, a person that's, been come, into, that's come into our midst that is himself peace, they meant this 
as good news. They meant it as something to be heralded from the rooftops. And our task then, the thing that we have received, is this heritage. A heritage that reminds ourselves and proclaims to a watching world that Christmas offers peace. Now, one of my tasks for the morning is I want to describe peace somewhat. We won't get fully there, but somewhat the way that it's used in Isaiah chapter 9. And then I'm going to reflect on a few of the specific places where peace has been brought because of the work of Christ. So we're going to try to define and think about this idea for a minute. Then we're going to look at peace with God, our creator, peace with one another. And if we have time, we'll talk about peace with self and peace of the cosmos. So that's the goal of the morning. Let me take a moment and pray for us. God, would you please help us to not make peace a a mere byword, just a, a throwaway. It's being stamped on a million Christmas cards this very day. We will sing of it over and over and over again. We've lit the candle. And I pray that you would show us what peace is. Increase our longing for peace. And may we be people who proclaim Jesus, who is the only hope for lasting peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a word in Hebrew that is most commonly used for peace, although it's one of many, you know, like many of the things that are brought from one language to the other, you won't fully get at it. But this is a word that you've perhaps heard before. What Isaiah says is, is that there has been given to us a son, a child born, who is the prince of, and this is the word, shalom. He says, of the increase of his government and of shalom, there will be no end. So the idea here of shalom is essentially wholeness. I want you to think about wholeness, like perfection. There's a word probably from a root of an idea of a stone, a perfectly intact with no chips out of it, like a non-chipped tooth, a perfectly intact stone or thing. The idea of shalom is that something has integrity. There are no holes. That what you see is what you get. There's no parts missing. The idea of shalom is to avoid that feeling you get when having spent hours with your in-laws putting together a puzzle, realizing that four pieces are missing. Shalom is a full puzzle, everything there. And more than that, I would say the concept of shalom is a kind of working power. Peace is something that is active in Scripture, not merely the absence of hostility. Because peace needs to be an active thing that works to bring together, not merely halts the separating. So some people maybe view peace as merely the stopping of something. So a dad that yells in the back seat, would you stop hitting each other? I just want some peace and quiet. Well, the kids may halt something. They may stop hitting one another and all the while give one another looks the whole trip saying something like this. I want you to know I'm still hitting you in my brain. I'm imagining this, right? What shalom is, this idea, is that it's not only the halting of something that was pressing apart and scattering, but shalom is a kind of power, a promise that says that those things that had been scattered will begin to come together. 
It's a replacement from heart and mind of your children not only stopping to slap one another, but beginning to work toward one another's good. In that way, if you set up, I'll go back to the puzzle analogy, if you set up a time-lapse camera at the top of the table where the puzzle's being put together, you could call it shalom, the process, if you watched it in sort of slow-mo time-lapse, of all the pieces that had been scattered being picked up and slowly put together. And what was once faceless because it was turned over on the wrong edge and upside down in the wrong way begins to go in with other pieces so that a unity forms. And eventually what is shown is a picture that existed before the puzzle stamping machine. I think that's how they do it. I can't imagine there's a guy cutting those out. There must be a big machine, right? Before the big machine stamped the thing and it all scattered into the box, shalom is this presence, this power, this gift of reimagining, of re-putting things back together. And so what is announced when Jesus is born at Christmas? What is pictured in the lighting of the peace calendar? Calendar. Candle. Do you have a calendar too? Let's help. What is pictured is not only a halting of things that are negative and bad and scattering, but Jesus has promised that in his administration that things will be put back together. So if you feel lack, if you feel as though the family's just not quite what it should be, if you feel like your mind is not what it should be, your heart is not where it should be, if you bear the scars and the marks of being scattered through the world, hurting others and being hurt, then the promise of Jesus is that shalom will come and what has been scattered can be reconstituted. You can be whole. You can have peace. In this life or the next, you will find yourself at peace if you receive this child who was born. That is good news. Now, that's not all that Isaiah 9 says. And Paul applies it in a certain way in the second chapter of Ephesians that we need to be clear about. The first relationships, the first thing that has been scattered that needs some integrity put back is a relationship of humanity with their creator. You guys probably know the story of the Garden of Eden. Sin enters into the world, and the first things that happen is there are cracks that form in the relationship between those created and God himself. What was once ease of relationship and ease of conversation and walking together, and this is the words of Genesis, in the coolness of the day, turns into hiding and shame and lapsed conversation, eventually culminating in the sending out of an Adam and Eve from the garden. There is a separating reality to the loss of our relationship with Creator. And so the first part of Ephesians chapter 2, for instance, Paul says, those of you who were scattered, separated, disconnected, the way the Bible describes it as you were dead in your trespasses and sins, those who were blind, not just my sight's a little bit off, maybe Jesus could help me go from, you know, 20-something to 2020. No, the idea is you were blind, like eyes plucked out, ears that could not hear, And he says in the beginning of Ephesians 2 that when you receive Jesus, that you're forgiven, you've been given grace, and you're saved, you're put back together, you're reconciled. Corinthians says that the whole ministry of Jesus was to reconcile us 
to our Creator. This is the way that Colossians chapter 1 puts it. It says in verse 19, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Meaning at one point, as we talked about with Lessons and Carols last week, there was a moment when something came into the world that was bigger than all of the world. All the fullness of God dwelt in the child. And through him, verse 20, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I'm going to pause there, and I want to say as clearly as possible, there is a path to reconciliation with your creator, and it is only through Jesus Christ. If there is one thing that is said on Christmas or during Christmas season, it is evangelistic in nature. It is this. What has been lost and separated, the sin that has kept us from the perfection that is God himself, can be set right in Jesus. Jesus came to undo the consequences of sin in humanity. He lived a perfect life which you and I should have done, but we cannot. He died a sacrificial death, a death that comes as a punishment for sin. The wages of sin is death, a death that we all deserved. And that same Jesus went into the grave and overcame it, rising to newness of life and then offering to us the same. And what's the point? Where does he go when he rises to newness of life? He goes back to be united with the Father. And this promise is given to you and to me. That when we confess Jesus, and when we see our sins placed upon him, and when we receive his righteousness, then we too will be reconciled to our creator. There is no other path, no other hope. It is not something to yawn about. Christianity essentially has nothing else to say. I would say that if you want pleasantries, and gifts, and beauty, and song, I hope we have all of that in abundance, but it's not the only place you can get those things. But peace with God, peace with your Creator, it is only found through Christ. The child has been born for peace. Christmas is God extending peace toward those who have been alienated and through Christ being reconciled back to Himself. That's the message. Of Christmas. Now, more than that, and in addition to that, because we've been reconciled to God, Scripture tells us that we also are reconciled to one another. That means that here in this room, if you're confessing Christ and you've been reconciled to your Creator, that you also are bound together in one family in a way that is eternal and bound and strong and will never ever fail. What that means is, is that we ought to be a demonstration of unexplainable, unbelievable peace. Now, hold on. I know you can hopefully you can keep a straight face. I am describing the church. That the church should be a place of unexplainable, undeniable, and ongoing peace. This is not often the case, but it sure can be. I'm going to give you a story. We're going to go back to World War I. It's perhaps an illustration that you've heard before. I hope it is because it's a powerful one. A number of months into the first 
bit of the war at the end of 1914, the reality of the difficulty of this was beginning to set in. There were many miles of trenches dug with English officers and soldiers on one side and German officers and soldiers on the other, sitting in their own filth, often with disease, very little to eat, cold, winter setting in. And then come Christmas Eve of 1914, some English soldiers overheard German officers singing what had to be Christmas carols. They thought they heard chanting and praying. And this led to what has been called the Christmas Truce of 1914. So that on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, in the midst of war, world war, English soldiers and German soldiers met in the middle of no man's land to exchange gifts, pleasantries, and more. I'm going to give you in the words of people who experienced this. This gentleman's name is Bruce Bairn's father, which he's got to be British. It just sounds like it. So soldier Bairn's father, he wrote this. He said, I would not have missed that unique and weird Christmas day for anything. I spotted a German officer who was some sort of lieutenant, I should think, and I was a bit of a collector. So I intimated to him that I had taken a fancy to some of his buttons. I brought out my wire clippers and with a few deft snips removed a couple of his buttons and put them in my pocket and then gave him two of mine in exchange. I want you to know these are two soldiers who are sworn enemies trying to fight what is going to be known as the Great War the world over. They meet in the midst of no man's land with shells everywhere and still oftentimes casualties around them. And one man pulls out clippers to the other man's chest, not to harm him, but to exchange gifts of their buttons. He goes on. He says, the last that I saw was one of my machine gunners, who was a bit of an amateur hairdresser in civil life. He was cutting the unnaturally long, I love how he judges it, so it's still not perfect, but the unnaturally long hair of a docile German. He actually uses a bad word for the German. Again, it's not perfect. It's just being put back together, but... This hairdresser, amateur hairdresser, machine gunner, was patient. He was cutting the hair of a man who was patiently kneeling on the ground while the automatic clippers crept up the back of his neck. I love the way that this man imaged this thing. He pictures himself meeting at the center of a battlefield and pulling out snippers to the chest in order to exchange gifts. He looks back and he sees a machine gunner with another man kneeling in front of him, head bent, not for an execution but for a freshening up and a haircut. There's another gentleman, a 19-year-old private named Henry Williamson, who wrote to his mother in the days following this. Looks like he wrote this somewhat on Christmas. He says, Dear Mother, I'm writing from the trenches. It's 11 o'clock in the morning. Beside me is a fire, and opposite me a dugout, which is a part of their trench system, wet, full of straw. The ground is sloppy in the actual trench, but frozen elsewhere. In my mouth is a pipe presented by the Princess Mary. In the pipe is tobacco. Of course, you say, but wait. In the pipe is German tobacco. Ha ha, you say. I like how this guy writes. He's writing to his mom. Ha ha, you say. German tobacco from a prisoner or found in a captured trench? Oh dear, no. 
from a German soldier. Yes, a live German soldier from his own trench. Yesterday, the British and Germans met and shook hands in the ground between the trenches. They exchanged souvenirs and shook hands. Yes, all day Christmas Day, and even now as I write. And then he ends it with these three words of the question mark to his mom. He says, marvelous, isn't it? Marvelous, isn't it? This 19-year-old soldier had received and experienced peace in the most inexplicable and insane of circumstances. In a place where there should have been only hostility and war, there had been a meeting together of the sides. And his only response is from his soul to marvel at such a thing. And I want you to know what happens when he sees and receives this kind of peace. He marvels. He goes back to his trench. He says, someone else needs to know about this. I'm going to write about this thing. I love that he thinks of his mom, but he writes his mom. He writes the scene to his mom, and then his conclusion is that upon reading this, she ought to find it marvelous as well. And his imagination in this moment is that peace, unlikely, inexplicable, undeniable peace, should be marveled at, should be received, should be something that inspires and makes us stand at attention. Now let me do the, the preachery thing. Isaiah has declared a peace, an inexplicable peace from the birth of a child. A child that will grow and have an increase of government only up and to the right. A child who would absorb the sins of humanity to bind us together to our Creator. He describes a peace wherein Jews and Gentiles... Sworn enemies, Jewish people often had taken the pride of being God's chosen ones and looking down with derision upon anyone on the outside. They had erected walls in the temple rather than gathering the nations to themselves. They had attempted, they had put up literal walls so that the Gentiles could be kept out of worship and not see what was happening. And Paul looks at this and he sees what Jesus has accomplished. A church full of of Jewish people and Gentile folks from different ethnicities and languages, all together in the same room in some sort of motley crew of a weird club. And reflecting back as he writes to the Ephesians, he says, marvelous, isn't it? There is a palpable, tangible binding that has happened in Christ that cannot be met by anything else. I'm grateful for affinity groups. I'm grateful that so many of us are agreed that FSU is a worthy football team to claim a national championship, no matter what anyone else says. But I'm also grateful that in the peace of Jesus, that those on the outside are also received in. And in the church, oftentimes the moment when you recognize the biggest difference with someone you don't like, someone you say to yourself, how could they possibly think like that? You like which song with which instrument? You like it when the guy goes that long in church? Seriously? You want the candles, not the thing? I'm like, or worse than that, when we sin against one another and forgiveness seems so far off. Well, then we read concerning the gift of Christmas. We imagine peace and we see a Jesus who is putting things back together. And we ought to say, like the Apostle Paul, man, marvelous, isn't it? 
We should look at opportunities of difference between us as moments when the gift of Jesus is put on display. I don't understand you. I think that's strange. I'm hurt by you. But I'm going to move towards shalom. I'm going to be a peacemaker because Jesus gave us this ministry so that I can offer to the world something that is different than mere self-preference, mere affinity, and tribalism. But Christ bought peace. Maybe I would just say it like this. Christmas time, maybe in immediate families and beyond that, and certainly in the family of God, ought to be a time of movement toward one another. You are either neutral or you're a peacemaker. I'm going to assume the best of you. Some of us are sometimes neither neutral nor a peacemaker. We're getting some slaps in, some jabs. The question is, are we making peace? Are we praying for, are we seeing the the overhead of the puzzle that's scattered everywhere? And I know you're scattered. I'm scattered. Our relationships are scattered. The church doesn't make sense to us sometimes. Your family is difficult. Your own heart feels shattered in different spots. When Jesus says, I can bring peace. I can put things back together. And this is the gift of the church. So let's let Christmas be an active time of peace. Now, if the Spirit of God can only give you to withhold from slapping one another, then let's rejoice in that. But we shrink back from the frothy, mouthed, angry kind of debates that we're having. That shouldn't mark us. We want to have a kind of peace that we could write marvelous, isn't it? Let me tell you what I experienced. Marvelous isn't it? Now, I don't have a lot of time to consider these last two, but I want you to see how big the peace of God is offered to us in Jesus. As an outflow, what happens when you're reconciled to your creator and you begin to be reconciled to the people around you? Well, I think it rearranges your insides. You have an experience of something, a lightness that is offered nowhere else. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 puts it this way. There is no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. To be put back means that you can silence the accuser. Silence the inner doubts. The constant cycle of guilt and shame. What God desires and is giving to you in Christ is an experience, a relief, an easy burden, a light yoke. Augustine once wrote in what is probably the first ever written autobiography in the history of civilization, he once famously wrote that our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee, writing to God. Do you have rest in your soul? Well, Christ was born. One other outflow of this is that there's such good news. Why did Isaiah write? And why does the Apostle Paul write? And why does the church now, 2,000 years later, why are we rehearsing all this this morning? Do you know that the peace of Jesus extends all the way down to every single molecule of the universe? Romans 8 is a great chapter to reflect on in Christmas season, I think, just because of the hope of the thing. 
But you know what it says? It says that the earth itself, the soil is groaning and waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. The rocks themselves know that peace is coming. As a part of the curse, the ground itself is cursed with thorn and thistle. And the end of the coming of Christ is eventually that every single thing will be remade. Integrity restored. Jesus once described those who would follow him and said, if you don't rejoice, well, then the rocks will cry out. And maybe I would say it like this. Well, you know, if you don't experience peace, the rocks will. Because they're going to be proclaiming the peace of Jesus, when everything is restored and there's a new heaven and a new earth and every single thing that tends toward entropy and all of the world that is pressed away in a scattering force will be remade in Jesus and there will be integrity and wholeness and perfection and smoothness of life and earth and all that is. That's the glory of Jesus in offering peace. So for now, let's proclaim peace in Christ as good news. Let's offer to those who have been separated from their creator a way back home. Let's remind one another that we are connected to each other as a family forever. Let's give up the performance and the self-loathing and the guilt and the shame. Let's rejoice with all of the earth that knows what's coming. We're going to sing songs like this over the next number of weeks. For now, let's pray.